God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Alleluia, alleluia. Praise him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. Alleluia, alleluia. Amen. Let's be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. Please turn your Bibles to John chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the first 12 verses of this chapter. Probably familiar story for a lot of you. It's the story of Jesus turning water into wine at the celebration of a marriage. But let me start with this little illustration. I'd love to ask you to give me a show of hands for what parents have done this. Uh, how many of you, usually on your child's first birthday, have ever bought or made a cake, maybe a whole cake, sit it in front of this toddler with the implication that this is all yours. <clears throat> On this occasion, yeah, we've got a few hands out there, yeah. <laughs> On this occasion, Linda wants her own cake. We, we usually gather around, you know, we become cheerleaders, we're, we're taking videos, we're, we're taking pictures, and we want that kid head first in that cake. That is our heart's desire, right? And depending on the child, when you have twins, you really get to test this. <laughs> depending on the child, they'll either be reluctant, Abby, who doesn't really like to get dirty. And anybody who knows Avram knows he's head first into that cake. So depending on your child, you might have to actually push them a little bit, or they might take advantage of it. So here's the question. Is this bad parenting? Is it bad to encourage a one-year-old to indulge in this way? Are we promoting childhood obesity? Are we promoting type 2 diabetes? Are we just promoting, you know, just simply bad self-discipline? Well, most of you are chuckling, and of course you are, because we know this is not bad parenting. Most, most parents do this. We all understand that this is a special occasion. We don't do this all the time. If we placed a whole cake in front of our child every day or every week, that probably would definitely cross the line of, of good parenting. But there's nothing wrong with a parent who just wants to enjoy seeing this unshackled, unchanged celebration of this one-year-old. We love to see the cake and the frosting just exploding everywhere, right? That brings us joy. Well, it might sound kind of strange, but I believe that here in this story, in John chapter 2, the character of Jesus as he transforms water into wine is a lot like this parent who just takes great joy in indulging in their child in this way. 
Now there's a lot of theological juice to squeeze out of this out of this passage. That pun was for Annalise. If you've ever been to her concert, she loves to, to talk about puns. But there's a lot in these twelve verses, and I mean just the the juice and the jars and the water. You could probably preach a whole sermon on just that part, but I'm not going to. Uh, but I think the big picture here that I'm going to try to bring out in this sermon is that Jesus enjoys and encourages fun and joy and celebration. Why else would his very first miracle be at a wedding? And why would his first sign be to create over a hundred gallons of wine? Not grape juice. We'll, we'll get back to that. It's not grape juice. <clears throat> Jesus is our savior. He's our, he's our prophet. He's our priest. He's our great king. But Jesus is also a lover of fun. And he is the one in this passage who produces wine for this fun celebration. If you got your bulletins, you'll see that I've broken it down so you can follow along. Uh, the first, everything, everything gravitates around the wine concept. Uh, the absence of wine is the problem in the first five verses. Then Jesus produces the wine, and we'll talk about some of the theological aspects of that. And then we'll end by just discussing how this miracle reveals the glory of Jesus Christ. So let's look at this passage. John chapter 2. Verses 1 to 12. Hear God's word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. In the first five verses of this chapter, there's an interaction between Mary and Jesus. And so the first thing I'm, I need to do is talk about two wrong ways to emphasize Mary in this passage. The first one is the Roman Catholic emphasis. This emphasis sees Mary as someone 
that you have to go to in order to get to Jesus. So you go to Mary first, and then she goes to Jesus. She petitions Jesus for you. And this passage is used to promote that idea, but it really flows out of the the overall Roman Catholic systematic teaching that Mary is what they call a a co-mediator, or a co-mediatrix, I think is the word that, that they use in their documents. They even go as far as to say that Jesus is the second Adam, and Mary is the second Eve. I never knew that until this week. <clears throat> Let me quote this website. Uh, There's a website called Catholic Answers, and if you, I think they do a great job. Now, I don't agree with their theology, but it's a good place to go if you, if you just want to easily understand some difficult Roman Catholic doctrines. But in this article that I, that I read, they say, Mary's divine son eventually performs his first miracle, brings the, the apostles to faith, and launches his ministry that will bring all of God's and Mary's children eternal life. So their view is that Mary's function they probably wouldn't say this, but almost as important as Jesus' function. So Mary is a big actor in our redemption. But the scriptures do not give Mary partial credit for our salvation or our redemption. And we probably are very familiar with Paul, who says in 1 Timothy 2.5, There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And Mary is not wedged in there between us. We go to Jesus. We don't go to Mary. Now, stop picking on the Roman Catholics for a little bit. The other wrong way to take this passage is to see Jesus as being just plain rude or dismissive to Mary. And the reason that some people interpret it this way is because we incorrectly place the feeling of someone calling someone woman on this ancient culture. When I was a teenager, this is confession time, every lady's going to slap me when they walk out the door now. Uh, when I was a teenager, I would call my mother woman. I would say, woman, fix my supper. Woman, pick up my, my clothes. Woman. I know, it's terrible. I'm probably going to get a lot of those slaps. <clears throat> Uh, thankfully, if you think my mother was not a disciplinarian, thankfully she also had a sense of humor. Uh, she knew I was joking and she could take a good joke. Uh, otherwise, let's just say they would be harsh, harsh penalties. Uh, but unlike me, Jesus is not being disrespectful when he calls his mother woman in this passage. I'm going to let a commentator named Josh Moody explain what's going on here because I just like the way he says this. He says, in our culture, we do not address a woman as woman without disrespect. That's obvious from all the response I got just now. But the way it was used then and in that culture and in that language was a polite and courteous expression. Perhaps more like saying, lady in English or, this, I like this one better, madame in French. Uh, it wasn't a sentimental type of, of uh, expression, but it also was not rude. 
So it was a less intimate term. He's not calling her mother here. But it's also not a disrespectful or, or putting down type of, of expression either. Now the question is, why is Jesus using a formal, polite way of addressing Mary here instead of using the intimate term mother? Well, I think what's going on here is that out of love for Mary, Jesus is trying to show her we have to disconnect the mother and son relationship, at least, at least attempt to. Now, who knows if Mary was ever actually able to do that. And the reason for this, I believe, is because we all know Jesus' hour was coming. He was going to suffer. And everybody knows that when a child suffers, who does the most suffering with them? You can say it. A mother. That's right. Yeah. And so Jesus was loving his mother in this way. I mean, he knows the prophecy that, that a sword is going to pierce Mary's heart, and he's trying to prevent some of that. Now, let's talk about the purpose of this exchange between Jesus and Mary and why Jesus says, what does this have to do with me while we all know that Jesus is going to do this? So why does Jesus put this challenge to Mary when in his heart and mind, he plans on going through with this, this miracle. Uh, I think this is much like the man who, who comes to Jesus and says, Lord, I believe what? And what does he say? Help my unbelief. This man was feeling his lack of faith. And what did it cause him to do? Feeling your lack of faith causes you to do what? It causes you to cry out to Jesus. And that increases your faith. Well, in the same way, Jesus is letting Mary and letting the servants feel their need. And he's trying to build their faith by showing them that when you're in need, you go to the one who can provide, and that's Jesus. And our Lord does this for us in our lives and in big ways and little ways. Uh, think of this. Let's say you, you lose a job, and you go to the Lord, and you pray, you ask friends to pray for you, and a few, weeks, a few weeks or a few months later, you get a better job. Well, did Jesus know the whole time that he was going to give you that better job? Well, of course he did. But his purpose in taking the first job was to give you that little wilderness experience of resting and leaning and even some fear to realize you need to depend upon Christ, whereas if you had never lost that job, you may never grow those faith muscles the way that he wants you to. And I think our problem, my problem, is that we see prayer often as a tool that we wield in order to get what we want or get what we need. But God could, and I don't know if you guys have had this experience, but God often gives me things that I want and need even when I don't pray. Meeting our wants and our needs isn't the ultimate purpose of prayer. You see, the purpose of prayer is not to manipulate God so that he will favor us, like we seek him enough and then he starts favoring us. Because God already favors you in Christ. He's already provided for you in Christ. No, prayer is 
used by God as an opportunity. He uses it to expose and to test and to strengthen your faith. And in this passage, I believe Jesus gives Mary a test and a challenge when he tells her, my hour has not yet come. Mary, are you going to keep pursuing me if I push you out here and say, my hour is not yet come? And the implication in that is almost like Jesus is saying, Mary, I don't have time for trivial stuff. I've got big picture things to do. And this challenge reminds me a lot of the interaction Jesus has with a Canaanite woman. Are you folks familiar with that? Canaanite woman comes to Jesus. She's a Gentile. She doesn't belong to Israel. She has a daughter who is possessed by a demon. And she cries out to Jesus, have mercy on me. And Jesus kind of puts her off. He basically says, you are a Gentile dog. Now, in, in modern day, we probably would think Jesus was being a racist in that. But he's not. He's trying to pull faith out of her. And he says things to her like, listen, nobody in their right mind is going to take the plate of food from their child and set it down for the dogs to eat of. Because I came for the lost house of Israel. And this woman wasn't offended. Many of us might have been. We might have been offended and walked away. It did not dissuade her because she knew. She had enough faith to know this is the Son of God. He has the power of this demon, and he can cast this demon out if he wants to. And so what does she say to him? Many of you might know it. She says, But Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Even your crumbs are enough blessing for me. Just let those fall to me. That's sufficient. And Jesus tells her that her faith is great. And he heals her daughter. And Jesus was using this the whole time to create an opportunity for everyone to see. For us today, we're still talking about it how great this lady's faith was. And he does the same thing for Mary. In verse 5, Mary's expression of faith is when she says, do whatever he tells you. If he wants to change the water to wine, that is good. If he chooses not to, that is good. Whatever he does is good, and I will accept it. Do whatever he tells you to. So the problem in this chapter is the absence of wine, the absence of a substance that makes a wedding fun. And how often do you think about the solution to the absence of fun is Mike Thompson? Maybe. But it's Jesus in this passage. And I don't think that we think of this side of Jesus very often. Think about this. When you pray, you might think, My prayers aren't spiritual unless I'm praying for that terrible conflict in the Middle East. Uh, I need to be praying for for the missionaries uh, who who are suffering and working so hard in difficult situations. I need to pray for that person who is in the hospital with a with a life threatening illness. And you should pray for those things. We should all be praying for those things. 
But Jesus also cares about things that just make you happy and bring you joy. And he won't, he won't deny you those things. If your child prays for a new toy, don't chastise the child. That's okay. I think Jesus might care about that. If, if you pray for good, good weather, a lot of you here like to go to the gorge and places like that. Pray for good weather for a hiking trip, a canoeing trip, something like that. I don't think Jesus frowns upon that. And as long as we aren't letting the fun things be the main thing in our prayer, I think God is happy with them. But fun and joy and celebration, those are only the byproducts of something else that John wants us to see in this passage. Fun is not the only purpose of Jesus changing water into wine. He's also giving us an example here of his power to change. And he wants us to understand, I can cause great change. And that brings us to our second point, the production of wine. Beginning in verse 6, John says, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Give her a little break. <laughs> okay. Before I get into the, the theological meat of this passage, I have to take a moment to address the wine bottle in the room. For those who want to argue that Jesus turns this water into grape juice, anybody ever heard that interpretation? Yep. I see the good independent fundamentalist Baptist back there. Uh, Actually, one of my favorite barbers taught me this while he gave me a haircut one day. <clears throat> Love that guy, but I don't agree with him on this. Uh, this interpretation really does not make sense. First, the word used here, oinon, uh, it's the same word that Paul uses in, in Ephesians 5.18 when he says, Do not be drunk with oinon. So at a word level alone, you see that? Same word. Don't be drunk with oinon. It's not grape juice. Something you can be drunk, you can become drunk from. So, but if we're good reformed people, we don't like to stop at the word level, right? Because the context is king. But I think the context of this passage also implies this is real wine. The master of the feast says, people usually serve the good wine first. Why do they serve the good wine first and wait until later to serve the lesser quality wine? Anybody want to answer that? I figured Linda or Ken probably would. <laughs> right, yeah, no, we don't want to say drunk because the Bible says don't get drunk, but it, it's right, yeah, it, it is affecting your senses. 
So the reason that you serve the good wine first is because you can wait and serve the bad wine after people have lost a little bit of their senses, taste and smell, and, and they, they don't really care that they're drinking bad quality wine. So <clears throat> the implication here is that the folks at the wedding are actually feeling the effects of grape, of, of uh, grape juice. They are not merely puckering severely because of some very tart grape juice. That's not what's happening here. So in my opinion, this text does away, it's one text that does away with the idea that if a drop of alcohol touches your lips, you're a sinner. Now, the Bible also does not approve of drunkenness. And I quoted a passage from Paul that says, do not be drunk with wine. The thing is, the wine is not evil in and of itself. Just like a piece of cake is not evil in and of itself. It's how we use it. It's how we depend on it. How we tend to not use those things in moderation. Now, let's get to some theology here. Uh, the first, first thing I want to talk about is the theme of cleansing that we see here in these stone jars. These six jars that John mentions here, they're not there, kids, they're not there for you to come by and wash your hands because they're dirty. I actually thought that when I first read the, the passage where the Pharisees rebuke the disciples for unwashed hands. I'm like, what's wrong with that? Uh, but that's not the point here. This was a ritualistic cleansing, and the Jews believed that you had to go through this little ceremony in order to be clean to participate in cer certain special events like this wedding. <clears throat> now, this, this practice is not prescribed in the Old Testament. So don't go back to the Old Testament and think you're going to find this type. There might be some like it, but not this exact one in the Old Testament. Uh, this is probably more of an oral tradition, rabbinical tradition. But that's still not going to stop John from using it to show us the imagery of how Christ cleanses his people. Now, we're amazed that Jesus can transform H2O into CH3CH2OH. That's the, that's the chemical equation. All the chemi chemists out there. That's the chemical equation for alcohol. The transformation that takes place in these jars is meant to be a lesser to greater argument. You guys ever heard of a lesser to greater argument? If God does this, then surely he will do that. If Jesus is willing to transform the lesser parts of creation, if he's willing to take chemical compounds and change them for an earthly temporal celebration, how much more is he willing to do the spiritual miracle of uniting him to yourself? and cleansing you in just the right way to take away all of your sins. So the jars are making the theological point that Christ came to purify his people. But the producing of the actual wine is making another theological point. In the Old Testament, there are several places that talk about wine, the coming of wine, the drinking of wine, wines, you know, just spewing from the mountains. And those passages are talking about 
the consummation of the arrival of the time of the Messiah. Let me just give you three of them real quick. Amos 9.14 says, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. Joel 3.18 says, And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine. Isaiah 55.1 Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, or, yeah, without money and without price. So the, the giving of the joy of wine, producing wine, great amounts of wine, is actually a picture of the coming of the kingdom of the Messiah. And Jesus is using this event at this wedding to reveal his glory and to show his people that he is the one that the Old Testament has said will come and be the, the one who produces wine. For his people. Now, this miracle produces more than the mirth that wine provides. It reveals something to God's people. It reveals Christ's glory. And it actually produces faith in some. And that brings us to our final point. Beginning in verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Now, there are two things that I would like to quickly highlight in these two verses. The first one is, John says, this was Jesus' first sign, and it manifested his glory. Now, I've got another two. I don't know why this is all in twos. There are at least two things that can be emphasized about Jesus' glory in, in this, uh, this miracle. The obvious one is this. Jesus has divine power. He was able to take one sub substance and turn it into another substance by his sheer will. That is evidence of divine power, divine authority. He is at least a great prophet who speaks for God. And it validates his ministry, and his message should be taken seriously if he's able to do this. Second, this miracle emphasizes the glory of Jesus' love of joy, his love of celebration. You know, think about the glory of Jesus' love of fun, right? Who's that, whoever thinks about that? I don't. Jesus actually cares about fun. You're probably tired of hearing me say that. If Jesus did not care about fun, he could have said, let them drink water. This is, this is an insignificant event. I have souls to save. I don't have time to be transforming water into wine. But he took the time, and this is actually the first thing that John wants us to see about Jesus. And sometimes I have this experience. I'd be interested to know if anybody else has ever had this experience. Pastor Mike gets pulled up here even when he's not preaching. He's, he's kind of open game for, for sermon illustrations. So I'll be having a serious conversation with Pastor Mike either back there at the door. You might even see me doing it sometimes. Or, or back in his office, we'll be talking about things we have to plan. We might be talking about shepherding issues. Uh, he really loves to talk about theology. So we might be having a deep theological discussion. But... 
if a child comes within 50 feet of us, that conversation is done. It vanishes into nothing. Do you know why? Because I'm not fun. Kids are fun. <laughs> and, and Pastor Mike is not going to let the opportunity pass him by to connect with a child the common joy of fun. It's just not going to happen. That simple, joy-filled interaction, that is just as important to Mike as whatever, whatever I think is important. It's just as important to him. And even though the Martha in me might get a little irritated, and I have, I've also had to say over the years, I see Jesus in that. That's Jesus' attitude. There were blind people that needed to be healed. There were lame that needed to walk. There were Pharisees that needed to be rebuked and put in their place. There were disciples who desperately needed to be discipled. There were dead people that needed to be raised. And there was suffering and atoning for sin that needed to be done. But Jesus took the time in his limited three years to inject the spice of fun into this wedding. And those of us, you know who you are, I could probably name some of you, those of us who are task-oriented need to recognize this side of the Savior and we need to appreciate it in others. Now, hopefully they appreciate us too, but we need to appreciate that they reflect Christ in this way and not just be irritated or put off by them. I'm trying. <clears throat> now, the second thing we need to highlight here is that John says the disciples were the only ones who believed because of this miracle. I'm going to quote John MacArthur here. He says, There is no record that any of the servants who witnessed Jesus turning the water into wine followed him. Amazingly, Jesus seems to have left Cana with only the disciples who came there with him, despite having performed that miracle, the likes of which had not happened since Elijah and Elisha. Everyone at that wedding enjoyed the fun and the blessing and the wine that Jesus provided, but they did not all see the glory of the one who gave the wine. This miracle was a sign. This is why I had us read the sacrament stuff. Not that this is a sacrament, but it's a sign. This would have been a good day to do communion. Sorry, Mike. <clears throat> Signs validate the word of God. They strengthen faith. But the sign is not to be sought after for the sake of the sign. The sign giver is the one we should be seeking. And Jesus said this to a crowd later on in John chapter 6 who were following him everywhere because he was not a wine giver in that situation, but he was a food giver. He could create fish sandwiches out of nothing. That's a guy that you follow. Jesus says to these folks, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. It is possible to experience the blessings provided by the signs and miss their purpose. 
Their purpose is to display to you the beauty of the Savior. The hymn that we're going to close with, which was written by Charles Spurgeon, it says this very well. He says, If now with eyes defiled and dim, we see the signs, but see not him. Oh, may his love the scales displace and bid us see him face to face. The miracle in Cana shows us that Jesus delights in fun. We should not always in this life be consumed with how terrible everything is. We shouldn't always be consumed with how serious life is. I know as adults we have to do that. We shouldn't be consumed with our inability to fix ourselves and to fix other people. We should instead be encouraged that Jesus purifies us in spite of all those things. And we should see the seriousness of this story as well as the fun of this story. There were many, probably the majority, who witnessed the miracle. The servants at least saw everything that Jesus did. But the majority of the people did not see the Christ. The purpose of the wine and the cup in the scriptures is to show forth joy and happiness. But sadly, it can also represent something very tragic. It also represents the drinking down of God's wrath. Psalm 75, 8 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The dregs are those last remnants of everything in the bottom of that cup. This cup, spoken of in Psalm 75, the cup of God's wrath, Jesus did not make that wine, but Jesus drank it. He drank it for you. He drank it so that you would not have to drink it. But if you ignore his glory, fun, joy, and mirth is not what awaits you. It is the cup of God's wrath. And John's message to us is that we not only partake of the wine, but that we see and believe in the one who provides the wine. And Jesus only drank that terrifying cup one time. He will never drink it again. And those who see the glory beyond the signs, they will never drink that cup either. But there is a cup that we will drink. There's a cup reserved for those who see the glory of Christ. Jesus told his disciples that he would not drink of the cup of joy until he is where? Until he's in his kingdom and he's drinking it with you. Jesus is waiting for us to drink that joyful cup with him. And my prayer is that everyone who hears this sermon will one day pick up the cup of joy and drink it in the, in the kingdom of our Savior. Amen.